Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to another episode in the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast. And today I'm very happy to say we have Janice Tomlinson on the show. We'll be talking about her book, Goya, A Portrait of the Artist. It's come out from Princeton in 2020. And I have to tell you, I don't really know a lot about uh, Goya, but I do now because of Janice's really excellent book, and I encourage you to go out and get it and read it. So let me welcome you to the show, Janice. It's very good to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad you're here. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I was educated. My degree is in art history, but I became very engaged with the work of Francisco Goya very early on before even college. I had spent some high school years in Spain and came into contact with Goya during my senior year of high school. My best friend gave me a book on Goya a month after we had seen Goya in the Prado. I don't remember that I had, I don't remember quite why, how I expressed my interest, but it was apparently there. And um, he was always with me. Um, I also having spent time in Spain and then having gone to university and discovered the field of art history, which I really didn't know existed, I sort of had an outside track to realize that um, Spanish art was really not very well known or studied in the United States. If it was studied, people talked about the Golden Age and Velázquez and maybe Murillo. But in turning towards art after that in Spain, they touched on Goya, they touched on Picasso, but really very superficially. And unfortunately, I think this is still the case now where Goya sort of gets one, one lecture in the 19th century survey uh, and then onward and back to France and England. So I realized there was a lot of work to do. I realized this even in this, uh, looking at uh, for a topic as an undergraduate in the Sachs at McGill University and realizing that there were very few um, books on Goya to be had compared with his French contemporaries. And, um, you know, continued on. I, I, I sort of took a second path. I thought I would work on Catalan Romanesque after spending a year in Barcelona, but then I came around after doing a master's thesis in early Christian architecture. I, I came back to Goya. Um, so, yeah, uh, so the rest is history. I certainly didn't intend to spend my entire adult career looking at Goya. I thought that after I did my dissertation on his early paintings, his tapestry cartoons, I would move on to other things. Um, but, of course, you write one book and you get ideas for your next book. And so it goes. So I've written widely on Goya. But I've always um, written... Sorry. I'm sorry, I was going to say, it's one thing to be really interested in Goya or somebody like Goya, but it is another thing to write uh, an entire biography. And maybe you could talk a little bit about why you decided to do that. Yeah. Um, my other books were written as an art historian, which means I began with the works of art and talked about the works of art and then sort of put them within some kind of context, social, historical, somewhat biographical. But as I wrote those works, talking about the works of art, I realized how little we knew about Goya's life. 
And I also realized that a lot of what we said about Goya's life and that gets repeated in exhibition catalogs until it's taken as fact is sort of extrapolated from the works. Oh, you know, early on, it was like he paints scenes of the people of Madrid, so he was a man of the people, or he paints the black paintings, so he was old and depressed. Such things as this. And those are ideas that, that you know, come through in so many of the writings on Goya. So I decided to take an, a, a different tack. We have a tremendous amount of documentation on this individual. We have his personal correspondence to his lifelong friend, Martin Sapater. Unfortunately, we only have Goya's letters and we don't have the responses to them from Sapater. We have you know, records from his long career at court from 1775 until 1828. We have um, records of his participation in the Royal Academy. There's correspondence of friends and acquaintances who mentioned Goya and on and on it goes. And this documentation, obviously in Spanish, is to a great extent unknown to an English uh, public, and, and even in Spain, only known to specialists. So I began really as a labor of love to sort of collect everything we knew. And then, meanwhile, I was reading histories, and I was also reading the newspapers of the day, which have been digitized by the National Library of Spain. So you can get up one morning and say, I wonder what Goya was reading on May 7th, 1803, and you can go pull up the library, uh, the, the newspaper. And I was creating charts of these really to figure out where it would take me. Um, I had thought of writing a biography, and I said, I don't know how to write a biography. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, a colleague at the Prado was given, giving the, the, Mel, the equivalent of the Mellon lectures, the Catedral del Prado lectures, and with that offered uh, seminars uh, to selected young professionals. And she invited me to do a seminar, gave me a selection of topics, and I, I chose biography. So I began reading you know, all, everything that might be considered biography for Goya. And after that, she said, you know, you really should write this. So really, that was that was the kicker. <laughs> and then I sat down and seriously started. Um, well, I can't say I started reading biographies. I first of all started. I, I'm sorry, I can't, correct that. I can't say I started writing. First of all, I started reading biographies to get an idea of everything that you can do with a biography, which is a great deal. <laughs> I am humbled by anybody who attempts to do it. Um, I, I often think what would, and this is kind of egomaniacal, but if in a hundred years somebody wrote a biography of me, what, how could they know everything I know? I, it, it's just uh, astounding, that kind of epistemic gap. I mean, even though Goya's life is very well documented, as you say, still, it must be frustrating because there are probably years in which we just don't know anything. Actually, there are no huge gaps. It's interesting. There are no huge gaps at this point. But certainly, yes, you arrive to a point where you really just have to take a guess. You, yeah, you, that's right. You know, yeah, it's a, and, it's and a guess a part that, that I find disturbing. <laughs> I, I, it's hard for me to do. I'm a big, foot, I'm a big footnote guy. I like. Um, I don't like the gaps. But let's go. Let's talk about going a little bit. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm interested in here is his background and his training 
And he started his training, if it should be called training, I don't know, very early. How did that happen? Uh, Goya was uh, born in a village of Huendetolos, which is outside Saragossa, the capital of the province of Aragon. But his family really was based in Saragossa. And he, you know, within four months of his birth, they were back in Saragossa. His father was a gilder. His older older brother had followed in his father's footsteps as a gilder. And reading documentation on, on Goya's early life, you see that, you know, in the household, apprentices, young gilders came and went. So it was, an, it was a sort of an art, well, it, we might consider it craft, but at that point they didn't make that much of a distinction in Saragossa, although it would soon be made. Um, so he was surrounded by gilders. And through them, the gilder, a, a friend of his father's, um, was related to the leading painter in Saragossa, uh, Jose Luzan Martinez, who had a school of painting. Now, the fact is, Martinez's school was recognized 30 years later as a school that was open to all who wanted to study. So it's very possible that Goya didn't need a, a, a connection to get in. And according to his son, he studied four years at Luzan's um, school. What would he have studied? Well, he said, Goya himself said that he studied engravings and copied after engravings and drawings. There, there weren't, you know, there wasn't a picture gallery. There wasn't a lot of art outside of private collections in Saragossa. So he, he studied drawing mainly probably through prints. He then, obviously looking to go further, he entered two competitions at the Royal Academy in Madrid. Uh, one in 1763, that is when he was, I'm very bad at doing math on the fly, 17 years old, and another three years later when he was 20. Um, and in both cases, he didn't. He, he entered... Uh, Art, young artists would do a drawing and then they would submit a painting. And, and there was no, I mean, there was a mention that he was in the, uh, had entered the competitions, but there was no mention made of him. He didn't go anywhere with those. And, and whatever works he created have, have not been, uh, have not come to light. So, and this is what I love about Goya is three years later, of course, there's another competition at the Royal Academy, but Goya has had enough and he goes to Italy. Um, he just goes to Italy, and one of the great discoveries that I talk about in the book is a sketchbook that's come to light that probably comes from his, the final months of his two-year-long sojourn in Italy. And this came to light in the early um, 1990s. And in that book, it is just those one of those things that historians love. You know, there is a page where he uses a single ink, so he probably, for most of the names, so he probably wrote it at one time, remembering where he had gone. He says, here are the cities I have visited, but the best are, and those that I have seen from the outside. So you have this itinerary of, I haven't counted them, I'd say oh, at least 20, uh, 25 cities that he has been around, suggesting that he traveled everywhere. He also mentions at one point on the last page, you know, works that I have seen, you know, in, in, in the altarpieces that he looked at in Genoa. So we get an idea that he was just running around studying everywhere. We also have testimony of two Spanish artists in Rome that he 
had been there. He had been studying in Rome. So we know he spent some time in Rome. We also know, and we have long known, that he entered a, towards the end of his day, he entered a, 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 a competition at the Royal Academy in Parma. And actually, there was only first prize and he didn't get it. But from how the academicians reacted to his work, one, their comments suggest that he may well have gotten the prize if they didn't have to recognize a student of, the, of a professor in their own academy. Mm-hmm. Then he went back to Saragossa and where he could na- make no headway before he went to Italy, suddenly he was given you know, the, uh, commission to fresco a vault in uh, a major church uh, dedicated to St. Mary of the Pillar, the patron saint of Saragossa. And from there, and that is really where his, his um, career begins. In the I, meantime, I'm oh, sorry. I'm sorry, I was going to ask, and this may sound like a very, mm, what is the right word for this question, uh, kind of quotidian question. How did he support himself through this long journey? Yeah, that's, that's one of those questions that we can only ask. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, there was an exhibition about five years ago in, uh, in Saragossa, and it was put, uh, and it brought together works that the curator suggests are by Goya and predates 1775. I mean, so many of which would coincide with his Italian period. Certainly he was painting, you know, and they, they were small, mainly religious works. So did he paint things and sell them along the way? We don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what is remarkable is that several of the Spanish artists go on record. They go to Rome, but then they start getting a pension from the Academy in Madrid once they're recognized in Rome. And Goya never received that. So it's a very good question on how he supported himself. And I guess the only answer that I can think of is that he, you know, did some commissions and uh, along the way. Um, Was there a network of painters? I mean, I'm just trying to think of him showing up in an Italian city and, and like, who, whom should I contact? Well, I have a letter of introduction from this person and uh, this person knows that person. So I'm going to go hit them up. Do you have any idea how this transpired in terms of networks or? We know a little bit about the Spanish uh, artists in Rome around the time Goya was there. There was a man, a civilian by birth that had long lived in Rome, an artist named Preciado de la Vega, who was in touch with the Royal Academy in Madrid and was supposed to sort of show young Spanish artists the ropes um, in, uh, in Rome. And one of the artists who testifies to Goya's being in in Rome actually had an apartment in Preciado de la Vega's uh, house. It was sort of so there were there was a, a group of Spanish artists who joined together. They could go and draw. There was a, an academy. It's called the Academy of the Nude that had been recently founded where students of any nationality could go and draw after the model might have been one place where he, where he studied, but we really don't know, nor do we have drawings in, in his sketches, in his sketchbook, there are uh, from that in his Italian sketchbook, which, as I said, probably dates from his final months in 
Italy because he brought it back to him and then used several pages for other things once he returned to Spain. There are drawings after casts, most famously the Farnese Hercules. Um, and there are scenes, Old Testament scenes, etc. And there are copies of, of frescoes in churches in Rome, and there is a copy of sculpture. So he he did he drew, but we don't have a body of academic drawings that really suggest that he was drawing in the in the academy front before the model. So again, it's just very hard to say exactly how he studied, although. There is a testimony when he's getting married, someone referring that he went to the fact that he did go to Rome to study drawing, but we can't be sure where. So when he gets back to Spain, or he gets back to Spain from Italy, he, he enjoys a relatively rapid ascent and is eventually in the late uh, 1780s, I think, is appointed court painter. Is that right? And I have two questions. How did that happen? And two, what is a court painter? <laughs> <laughs> Both good questions. Uh, yes, he did. He returned to Saragossa. Uh, in 1773, he married Josefa Vallejo, whose brother Francisco was a very important up-and-coming court artist at the court of Charles III, Carlos III in Madrid. And it is probably through Vallejo, although Goya would later not admit that, that Goya was invited to Madrid in 1775 to paint designs for tapestries that would be woven by the Royal Tapestry Factory to decorate rooms in various royal residences. And the patrons who most, uh, and most of those tapestry cartoons were for tapestries that would hang in the chambers, private chambers of the Prince and Princess of Asturias, similar to the Prince and Princess of Wales, the, the, the prince who would inherit the throne to become Carlos IV and Maria Luisa. Those tapestries were, uh, were painted uh, as individual works, Goya did not have a salary. Uh, he'd hand in the tapestries, and then they, he'd given he'd estimate their value, and then it would be approved or not, and he'd get a, a portion of that value. It was not until 80, uh, 1785 when he got a salaried position as painter to the king that was kind of invented to get salaried painters to paint tapestry cartoons. And then four years later, when the prince for whom, who had enjoyed the tapestries after his cartoons, when he comes to the throne as Carlos IV, four months after his succession, Goya is elevated to court painter, which is the official rank of, uh, and, and to which every artist in Spain aspired. Ten years later, he would become first court painter, actually a position then shared with another artist, but there uh, and, and a position which had long gone um, unoccupied because the king um, obviously didn't think anyone deserved it until 1799 when it was granted to Goya. And what does yeah, a court, what, I was going to say, what does a court painter do exactly? I, I'm kind of imagining a lot of portraits. 
<laughs> a lot of portraits. Uh, but the thing is, you must you know, I mean, Charles, uh, okay, the, the King Carlos III arrived from Naples um, at the end of 1759, and he looked at Madrid, and he was not happy with what he saw. <laughs> Uh, so the Royal Palace in Madrid, if you've been to Madrid, that Royal Palace was just being finished and it needed decoration. If you toured the palace, you know, there are frescoes. Well, he invited Anton Rafael Mengs to paint frescoes. And then he invited John Battista Tiepolo came to Spain to paint frescoes. And then there are many frescoes, ceiling frescoes by Spanish artists who are less known. There were residences at the Escorial, at Aranjuez, at, at La Granja in Segovia. All of those had to be decorated to the king's taste. And this was a Bourbon monarch who had come from Italy and who had an idea of what a palace should look like. So those palaces improved, uh, you know, frescoist, history. Um, Gilders, uh, painters for portraits, but uh, uh, painters for tapestry designs, all of this to create these these truly exquisite interiors um, that many of which still exist today, most notably if you go to Madrid and visit the Royal Palace. I'm very interested in exactly what he did and how he was asked to do it in this context of renovation, so to say. Uh, it's a culture of uh, deference. Uh, and he was a- asked to do a lot of different things that weren't painting, I'm understanding. Is that right? Well, uh, tapestry cartoons were paintings. A yeah. tapestry cartoon is a design the size of a tapestry. And uh-huh. through his, he painted uh, over 60 of those. So what happened with that is that... Um, Measures, uh, measurements would be taken of the room that needed to be decorated in tapestry. They would be given to the painter to whom Goya reported, and I don't give the name because it changes over times, and they would be given to the artist. And at that point, the artist, so he had to envision, it was interesting because from the beginning, he had to envision series of paintings for a given room. And if you look at the room where you're sitting in now, you probably see a wall and then there's a window, then there's a wall, and then there's a port over the door. And there are these various sizes that have to fit into those spaces. So he had to think of a series of paintings that would fill those spaces, meet the demands with subjects that would be appropriate to whatever its size it were. It might be a long, thin corner piece between a window and the corner of the room. It might be a huge 20-foot wall that had to be covered. So, and this is interesting, first of all, and before, obviously, he set his brush to those large canvases, he created small sketches that would then be taken to the king and the prince and the princess for their approval. And once approved, Goya would set to paint the paintings that were the size of the tapestry to be woven over them, after them. The other thing that's important is that from the beginning, Goya starts thinking about images, not as individual images, but he's thinking of developing a theme through a series of images. And I think this is crucial for understanding the part of Goya's uniqueness, this mind that jumps from, you know, one 
one theme to a theme, that, a complementary theme that then unravel, you know, develops in a, a story throughout. And he does, he would do that later in his series of prints. He would do it in certain sequences of drawings that he would, uh, he would do it in certain sequences of drawings. And most famously, he would do it again in the late so-called black paintings, where he creates paintings that cover the walls, that hang above doors. He, he actually painted them directly on the plaster walls of the house, creating that kind of panoramic theater that surrounds anyone in, uh, in, in the room they, who enters the room. So the tapestry cartoons then are, are important for Goya's development, and they're also important for him making inroads at court because they clearly won the patronage of the future king of Spain, Carlos IV, and his, and his, his, his queen, Maria Luisa. Um, I want to talk about a series of events that may or may not have impacted Goya's life. And uh, the first of them is uh, 1789. That is the French Revolution. What, what impact did this have on Goya? Hmm. I, I, I mean, I just wondered if there ha it had any impact. Directly, uh, whether there was a direct impact on Goya... It's hard to say. Um, the great nephew of Goya's friend, Martin Sabater, inherited Goya's letters to his uncle. And before he wrote, published a biography based on those letters, he mentioned that in the 1790s, you know, Goya was affected by unpure ideas that were circulating at the time. And of course that gives us a lot of, you know, what were those, what, what was he talking about war? Was he talking about politics? Was he talking about sex? We don't know. <laughs> so, so that's always a tantalizing hint that, you know, art historians love to say, aha, he was talking about this, but we, we really can't know. But certainly, you know, that the French Revolution and the years to follow were, you know, cataclysmic and, and just disastrous to Spain. Um, Spain. You know, wars against the revolutionary uh, government, you know, tentative alliances, you know, just huge deficits because of wars against Fran France or because they were allied with Napoleon. It, it, it really um, was tragic. Yeah, we'll, we'll come to that in just a second. Okay. I want to go to the second event, and this one did have an impact on Goya. In um, 1790, remind me, three? three? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he, he went deaf. Yes, yes. Um, and we know, again, we have um, letters from a man named Sebastian Martinez, whose portrait by Goya is in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Many may have seen it. Uh, he had painted that in 1792. By 1793, we discover that Goya, who had been given leave to go to south of Spain um, to recuperate his health, supposedly, uh, had landed at the home of Sebastián Martínez in the southern port city of, of Cádiz, 
where he was recuperating from a serious illness. And because of Martinez's uh, letters back to Martin Sapater, uh, we know that, you know, he was deaf, he had vertigo, he had trouble um, walking, and he was recuperating gradually in March and April of that year, but his hearing did not improve. So by June, though, we know that he is back in Madrid. Um, we know that he is walking the streets because actually in, in June, he places an ad in the Diario de Madrid, the, the daily newspaper, for a, law, a box that had fallen from his pocket, uh, a gold box with little scenes by David Teniers that suggests it's a, stuff, it's a, a snuff box, which either fell from his pocket, clinked on sidewalk, but he didn't hear that clink, or possibly was stolen. But he was, however, not sick in bed. He was around in the streets. It says it was lost some, somewhere between, let's just say, the Royal Palace and, and, and approximately where the Prado Museum today is today. So people have always seen this as a major turning point. I argue against that because as in so many other cases in Goya's art, he suffers a setback setback, and then he comes back to paint and makes incredible breakthroughs in his art. Um, on, the, on the official side, within a year, he was again painting portraits. But as he was recuperating, he also began to experiment. It's probably then that he began doing small drawings, sketches, or invented scenes of contemporary, of, you know, contemporary scenes that might have been inspired by what he saw, so he saw in Madrid. Um, and those drawings then would lead towards caricature, then would lead towards drawings where he started inscribing little captions, captions that might reflect the thoughts of the person portrayed or might suggest dialogue or might suggest the artist's commentary. And drawings with captions then start leading us into the the Prince of Los Caprichos that he publishes six years later in 1799. He also begins painting small works on tin plates and also on canvas, works that might measure only 12 by 18 inches, let's say approximately, that were cabinet paintings made to be, you know, installed in series, often in series in, uh, you know, a small room. Uh, in a well-to-do house. And this would lead us in 1798 to a series of six witchcraft paintings that he painted for the Duke and Duchess of Osuna for their um, country house. And in again, he was ill in 1793, April, um, March, April. But by January of the following year, he has completed 11 of what would be a series of 12 of these paintings and sends them to the Royal Academy just so his colleagues can see them because in them he says, these are not commissioned works and so uh, they are works in which my caprice and fantasy can basically run free. And before, however, he submits them to his academic colleagues, many of whom were pretty straight-laced, uh, he sends them to the vice protector, who was also a collector, who was also a friend of Goya's, saying, I'm sending 
nice to you. Hope you help and you can present them and, and sort of present them in a way so the academicians are sure to like them, essentially. Um, so again, he starts this whole new path, the drawings, the small paintings, which he would continue to do throughout his life. And his career then becomes dual tracked. His official career, portraits, history paintings, even altarpieces, even frescoing the dome of the church. And then on the side, the drawings, the small paintings, the etchings of Los Caprichos, a war, disparates. Mm-hmm. So this, this is a nice segue to my uh, a third event, and that is in 1808, Napoleon invades Spain in what is known as the Peninsular Wars. How did this affect Goya? What I really love about Goya is, first of all, as a student, he would say, okay, Academy is going to give me more. I'm, I'm going to go to Italy. I will learn to paint. And he is the same way when he, he faces, you know, what happened in 1808, which was basically, you know, his, the patrons that he had had since 1775 uh, were no longer on the throne. They were in exile in, in France and spent the war quite comfortably um, in, 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 in France, uh, in exile. Meanwhile, leaving, the, leaving their country behind. Um, I think Goya's attitude shifts um, during the war. Early on, he is called to his hometown of Saragossa, which had been under siege by the French very early on in the war during the summer of 1808. Um, and that siege had the Spaniards had been repelled by the Saragossa, uh, by the forces in Saragossa, but also Napoleon, uh, Joseph Bonaparte, because of the, the military entrance into Spain had not been well planned, um, they had to retreat. The, the French forces had to retreat and regroup. So Saragossa had been under siege to terrible destruction. I mean, Saragossa, I mean, was almost leveled by the siege and what would also be the second siege um, later on. So Goya was called to record the destruction of Saragossa. Apparently went to Saragossa. He told people at the academy he was going to Saragossa. And then he was back in Madrid by December. We have accounts, none of which are really can be verified where he traveled, how he traveled. Again, this is a part of the book that, you know, one has, I I had to surmise from what we know what might have happened. And we really don't have any works that testify to his being in Saragossa at that time. So he returns to Madrid. And in December, um, Napoleon now has come back. He's not leaving it to his brother, Joseph Bonaparte, who he had installed as King of Spain. Napoleon comes back leading his troops. Napoleon arrives on the outskirts of Madrid in December, uh, 1808, and bombards the city until they surrender. And by late December, Goya and several thousand heads of household go to their parish churches to take an oath of allegiance to the new King, Joseph Bonaparte. It appears, again, this, this, it appears that Goya was absent from Madrid in early 1809. Uh, a document suggests that he is, 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 lists him as absent. 
which might have been his an attempt that is referred to in 1814 when he tried to leave, leave Madrid to go to free, a free land. But he's soon back. Um, and by later that year is doing you an inventory for the new regime. By 1810 is painting portraits of, the, uh, of some members of uh, Joseph Bonaparte's uh, uh, household. Or, or court, and possibly he also painted the king himself, but if he did, that painting was probably overpainted, possibly by the equestrian portrait that he would paint of the Duke of Wellington two years later. There we have the official Goya. Meanwhile, in 1810, by 1810, he has begun to create the scenes of the battlefield, the scenes of wartime atrocities, the scenes of, in, in 1811 and 1812, scenes of the famine that ravaged Madrid. We know that he began by 1810 because three of them have an etched date of 1810. Goya, I, I'd like to underscore one thing. A lot of people talk about Goya witnessing what he painted in the war. I doubt that. Uh, Everything suggests that Goya was by now back in Madrid, spent the war years in Madrid. And I would like to suggest that those imagined scenes of atrocity really carry on what he was had been previously doing in his small paintings, where he imagined uh, an assault on a military camp, where he imagined scenes of rape, where he imagined scenes of atrocity. So he had these scenes as, you know, something that they, these scenes did find buyers. They, they were in demand. So I think he used that same imagination, that same invention to create, to imagine these scenes um, that he created in what would become, what would be titled The Disasters of War when the series was published some 35 years after Goya's death. Yeah, I, I want to drill down a little bit deeper there because you said something just absolutely fascinating. <laughs> I'm laughing at myself because this is kind of an unanswerable question. Why did he? Why did he paint these? This is a very unusual subject at the time, isn't it? And he wasn't producing them for the market; they were commissioned. What? Why did he undertake this? We don't know. Well, again, I think there might have been changes here. His early scenes are done on etched on good copper plates. Um, he went through several versions of these, which we know because he did the etching and then he printed it in what would be a trial proof. And then he went back to the plate and etched a little more and printed it again. So he was really working on those. And those earliest prints really are, are beautiful essays in the etching technique that suggests to me that perhaps he did think maybe there would be a market at that earliest stage. However, he then got caught up in the theme. He was almost compelled, you know, it's like an artist who begins and then thinks of this scene and thinks of this scene. 
So much so that, you know, when we look at the disasters of war as a series, it's not obvious when you look at them. But he went from etching, you know, a plate when copper was available that measured like six by 10 inches to finally you know, getting to the point where he had to cut another plate in half. And the smallest etching is, I think, about five by five inches. He got copper, copper obviously, as it would be in demand at wartime. It, there was a shortage. He, he cut plates. He used, he used damaged plates as he was compelled to record you know, the famine of Madrid, which is something, the effect of which, the impact of which he would have witnessed. I mean, people were dying in the streets. People were, you know, dead bodies had to be removed. Uh, and because uh, the other thing is the, the countryside, people from the countryside came to Madrid seeking refuge. You know, at least there was some sort of foundation for charity and they might get a meal after Napoleonic troops had ransacked their villages, taken their food, killed, killed their livestock, taken their crops. Um, so it was, it's, it's suggested that um, Madrid, whose population in, in, in the 1780s was around, um, 150,000. It's suggested that as many as 26,000 people died in Madrid between the fall of 1811 and the spring of 1812. So you can imagine what that was it, that was to experience. And one of the victims, indeed, of, of the disease that spreads during that time may have been Goya's wife, Josefa, who actually died in, in, um, in the spring of 1812. Um, Goya perhaps began to record for, for posterity because we have the only etchings we have and what I illustrate in the book are those trial proofs that Goya himself would have printed or pulled from the plates. They're very delicately etched and they don't have the, a lot of the overtone that would be added in the first edition. But then he didn't proceed on them. Um, he had probably lost money when he published Los Caprichos. Within four years of publishing Los Caprichos, he had turned the plate over uh, the, the copper plates and the, the unsold sets over to the Royal Printing Establishment way back in 1804. So he knew what it was to lose money. And also just the, um, the labor that goes into printing an edition of 80 plates is extraordinary. One doesn't take it on lightly. So again, Early plates, possibly he was thinking of a smaller series, possibly he was thinking that something that could be printed and sold. But then it just, the work, the scenes, the need to record, the need to attest to the tragedy of the war, I think, just took, took over and compelled him to go on. It's a hard, it's a hard question. Um, I want to rush forward a little bit. He he finally abandons Spain for France in uh, eighteen twenty four. Well, why does he do that? Um, there are many possibilities. Um, one is that he had probably been his his wife had died in eighteen twelve. He had probably been living in out on the outskirts of Madrid in. Um, a country house he had purchased in 1819 with uh, a, a younger woman, Leocadia Weiss, uh, whose daughter, Rosario, was uh, tutored by Goya in drawing. 
And I say that because Goya goes goes to France in June by 18, June 1824, by September settles in Bordeaux and Leocadia and her two children arrive, according to the border police, to join her husband in Bordeaux. Leocadia's husband was in Madrid. Leocadia was joining Goya. And, and a writer who is in Bordeaux, Boratin, writes that um, Goya is now here with La Senora. Just, and I mean, the, that, that woman, the lady, I, uh, if you will, suggesting that in that letter that was directed to a mutual friend in Madrid suggests that the relationship between Goya and Leocadia was known, suggests that it might have, uh, you know, they, they might have been together before going to Bordeaux. Yeah, I think it's very likely that they were. So to be with Leocadia might have been one reason. Um, the other reason was there was, uh, again, I mentioned the writer Leandro Fernandez de Moratin, whom Goya had known since the 1790s, who uh, had a very different, uh, who, who after the restoration of the Spanish king in 1814, was not allowed to return to to court. He had served the court of Joseph Bonaparte, so was not allowed to return to court, and who ended up um, traveling around, but by 1821 is in Bordeaux, and again, writes to that mutual friend about how satisfied he is with Bordeaux. And Bordeaux did have a, a colony of Spanish exiles. Um, the politics that might have um, served as catalyst was the fact that from 1820 to 23, there was a liberal period uh, where the liberals had come to power, forcing the Spanish king to adhere to a constitution that had been developed in 1812 and then promptly ignored by the Spanish king when he returned. But that ended with the help of um, European forces, mainly French, who entered Spain and and put the king back on his throne because uh, European monarchs had no interest in seeing, you know, a monarchy forced to accept a constitution. So uh, at that point, uh, the regime that was conservative became ultra-conservative. Goya's relationship with a married woman would have been definitely frowned upon. And Leocadia's son had also, it's been suggested he had liberal leanings, but he seems to have been too young. But so I think it might have been just the the moral, uh, see, the so-called moral turpitude of their relationship that might have led them um, to go to Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. It was it was just, I think it was a, a lifesaver for Goya's career. One wonders what would have happened to him in you know an increasingly conservative and rather dismal Madrid under Ferdinand VII in the 1820s in, in Spain. Um, whereas in Bordeaux, yeah, he comes to life. He starts, uh, he starts these wonderful drawings working with crayon rather than uh, brush and pen, rather than ink, ink, brush, ink, and pen, uh, you know, creating drawings of what he sees on the streets, creating drawings of madmen, just, just, wonderful new departure there. He experiments with miniature, um, 
Rosario, who the, the little girl, Leocadia's daughter, whom he's stu- who he's stu- whose education he's still overseeing in a way, is interested in miniature. And perhaps for that reason, Goya takes up miniature, experiments with a new technique, and then writes to a hoped-for patron in, in Paris that he has developed a new technique for, for um, miniature, uh, which are very broadly painting, not so tight or the stippling that is often used in miniatures of the day. And then, of course, in in France, he finds the art of lithography very well developed and discovers in the the lithographic establishment uh, in Bordeaux that would publish by the end of 1825 his series of the Bulls of Bordeaux that just are marvelous large prints that really took lithography to a new level. Um, So he comes alive in Bordeaux. He suffers a serious illness and he gets right back on his feet. And Moratine writes that, you know, he's painting like nobody's business and, and, you know, he won't let anyone say anything bad or anyone correct him. He's just back at it. And this is one thing that just fascinates me so much about Goya. Nothing holds him back from creating. And it comes again and again throughout his lifetime. Um, I, I have two additional questions, and then we will let you go. You've been very, very generous with your time. Um, the, the, the first question was prompted by something you said earlier in the interview, and, I, and I've been thinking about it while you've been talking. And that is our inclination to make inferences about artists, and I use artist in the broadest possible sense, an artist's person or character or life from their art. (laughs) (laughs) And I was wondering what you learned in writing a biography of Goya that one could not have understood by making inferences from his work to his character. Does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. Um... Well, uh, there are two. There are two things I could talk about. One are those early tapestry cartoons, and the other uh, would be the black paintings. Um, quickly about the tapestry cartoons: these are scenes of uh, leisure scenes of uh, people on the streets of Madrid and areas of Madrid, people in regions of Spain outdoors. They're kind of like comic theater. And when these were discovered, uh, in actually rolled up in the basement of the Royal Palace of Madrid in 1870. Um, Goya was immediately seen as a man of the people. And yet it's curious because they're at the same time, the same person who made that statement published some of the documentation where Goya is clearly very trying to impress his seniors at court where Goya is painting and he is steaming himself. And during these years when he's painting tapestry cartoons, we get to the point where he is aspiring. He's networking at court. He writes that he's just spent two hours chatting with um, the first minister. We might call him the secretary of state. Uh, we, he, he writes to Mar- uh, Martin Sabater about the wonderful concert in the palace. He decides he's going to study Fran- French, as did many other people in Madrid. So he is trying, he is a very, if he's isn't from the start, a cultivating person. He is developing his persona as someone who merits a position at court and can de- and networks at court. So Hart, a man of the people dancing on the streets of Madrid, he was not. And the other thing is, of course, this idea of the, of the so-called black 
black paintings that he paints on the walls of a house that he buys on the outskirts of Madrid uh, in 1819, where, as I suggested, he may, he may well have been with Leocadia, because indeed she is probably the subject of one of those paintings, which is also support for that, that um, uh, hypothesis. Um, so he is not old and embittered. And indeed, the documents when he transfers the, uh, the, that property to his grandson talked about all the improvements that he made, for which Goya is very well known, and talks about the gardens and the drainage and the house for the gardeners, etc. And it seems that Goya was, first of all, probably in the company of Leocadia and possibly and, and probably, I, probably her children. And also that he's sort of enjoying his his life as a as a as a as a homeowner as a little small country estate with gardens and walkways and this that and the other. So I think those which would you know counter the idea that oh poor Goya alone painting these grisly subjects on the walls. <laughs> Yeah, this leads me back actually to something else you said in the interview, and that is kind of being taken away by the the material. I think anybody who's ever written a book has had this happen to them because it starts out as just a thought, and then maybe you'll do some research, and I might write an article, and pretty soon eight years has gone by. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, a lot happened to you in that eight years, and and none of it is reflected in your life. The key crucial point is you got taken away by the material. And so inferring from the, the, the work of art or the book in this case back to the artist or the author is probably not a good idea. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, I, I, But anyway, it was a great answer. I, I really appreciate it. We've taken up a lot of your time um, and it's been a terrific interview. The f- traditional final question on the New Books Network is uh, this. Uh, what are you working on now? I knew that question was coming. And my answer is that for the first time in decades, I cannot say I am actually picking up things that I've wanted to read, looking and just um, not forcing what might come next. Well, that's that's a great answer. I've asked this question to hundreds of people and I keep waiting for somebody to say, well, that's it. I'm going to the Bahamas. I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nobody says that <laughs> no but i i am enjoying some free time to just read widely as as i please that's great well richly deserved um let me tell everybody that uh we've been talking to janice tomlinson about her terrific book goya a portrait of an artist of the artist pardon me uh from princeton university press 2020 Um, I'm Marshall Poe, the editor of the New Books Network, and I want to thank you, Janice, for being on the show. And I thank you because it's been a real pleasure. Good, good. All right. Well, thanks to everyone who listens to this, and I hope that you tune in again. Bye-bye.